Hi, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Schoolhouse Rocks. Uh, we are here today to continue um, what's not a formal series, but kind of a informal series on the work we've been doing in school district as it pertains to language arts instruction. Um, and we're back with one of our favorite experts, Barrett Gordon. So we'll have her say hi in a second. But our focus today is going to be on conferencing and the importance of feedback. So not only are we here with Barrett, but one of my favorite colleagues. So I would ask you both to introduce yourselves. Hi, my name is Eric Schmidt. I'm the secondary English and performing arts supervisor. I'm Barrett Gordon. I'm a teacher, author, and consultant. And I have the great pleasure of coming into Roxbury High School and working with the English department. So our topic today is conferring, which has been something that you've been working on pretty extensively with the staff here at the high school um, and is really kind of the newest iteration of our work to really enhance and modernize language arts instruction. Um, you know, certainly I think we, our staff members do a really great job here of making language arts literacy an important part of our academic program, something that students can learn to really embrace. But I think some of the work both of you have done to support them in I'm um, really kind of stretching our thinking about the best ways to do that have been critical to the ways that students have been able to verbalize their love of reading, their love of literacy. So let's focus a little bit on what that work has looked like to kind of warm up the current conversation, which has been conferencing and feedback. So tell us a little bit about what you guys, what's the, what's been the plan, Eric, or what's been the action, Barrett? So, I mean, uh, the concept of conferencing we found from teacher feedback is just kind of a next step in the evolution of our book love series. But it's also just the next step in just better instructional practices that are going to help our students learn. Uh, I've kind of thought of this as like the evolution of teaching from entirely whole class to teacher-centered learning to something that's maybe more student-specific and, and based on student needs. Uh, it, it's been described to me that traditional model of instruction where the teacher stands in front of the room is the most efficient but perhaps least effective form of instruction, whereas the uh, student-centered and the individualized feedback you're giving uh, may be the least efficient use of teacher time, but most effective. And that is a, a shift that we're, you know, really mindful of here and thinking about what we could do to really best support our students' needs. And I know that, that aligns to a lot of the research uh, that we've been digging into regarding feedback and student growth. So before, sorry, Barrett, I jumped in before you could. I, Eric, you mentioned book love. So at, you know, not to give a shameless plug to prior episodes of our podcast where you do talk about book love. In the event someone out there is listening to this episode and has not listened to prior episodes, tell us what book love is and why that is important. So book love, um, I guess, had its roots and its origins maybe almost a decade ago at this point. Um, with Penny Kittle, she had done publications for secondary literacy growth, and uh, it was promoting the idea of just giving students 10 minutes, an opportunity to read uh, a choice text independently. Um, and it really started with kind of like that bare level of expectation was just find a book you like and, you know, read. Um, so it, it began with an impetus of just growing classroom libraries, uh, developing a culture where we protected uh, time for students to do that work. Uh, I had heard it described as like the vitamin that we could ensure that students have to nourish their minds and their habits of reading. Uh, and we now see them, you know, reading, um, in class, right? Uh, that's kind of grown where the, you know, that culture of literacy is developed. Students are reading beyond even those, uh, allocated 10 minutes worth of time, but we've even worked to grow those, um, 
that time and that culture to to build stronger and better um, critical thinking habits as students are engaged in their independent reading. All right, Barrett, now you got a lot of stuff um, because you've been a part of that journey with us. So the floor is yours. It's been amazing to watch because it's just that we first just wanted kids to be reading and it really was in some ways a slow gradual shift and in other ways, I can't believe it. We were just in a classroom and students were taking, every single student took out a book to read before the official time to read even started. And then the timer went off and kids were still holding onto their books, just finishing one more page. And I don't get to see that very often. And that was great. So that was the first phase of this was getting students to read because we know that feedback, when feedback is done well in a classroom, you stand to get a year and a half to two years worth of growth among every learner um, in one academic year. But you can't give any feedback if students aren't doing something first and there's no space to do the right kind of feedback, which is on the spot feedback, unless students are engaged in the act of reading. So the reading had to happen first, and it's just a beautiful sight to see. And now teachers have been working on giving that high impact feedback, which it's not just, you know, feedback, I suppose, counts as you can say like, hey, good job. That's a form of feedback, but it's not really going to move anyone. Um, Feedback has to be specific. It has to be immediate. Ideally, it's tied to a goal that the student has had a voice and naming, and they have an opportunity to go try something again right away. Those are the components of feedback that really moves every learner in the room. And, um, and it's great because it's not teachers bringing home all these essays and commenting on them necessarily. It's on-the-spot feedback. And um, that's, what, that's what teachers have been doing during that reading time. All right, so I just took a whole bunch of notes. I just want to go back to one of the first things you said, and I just want to paint this image for anyone listening. Um, it's an image of students getting out in front of an expectation of reading because they've been empowered and supported to identify something of high interest to them, um, not something the teacher said, I liked this, or I was told you should like this, or this is something we have to read. It's something students identified, that students selected, that students maintain. They were out in front of it before time began. And now here's this, the staggering part. They read through the timer or the ending to finish the thought, the page. Um, and in between those two moments in time, there weren't these persistent questions of when does the timer over, right? So like my experience, particularly with like youngsters, at, now we're talking high school here, but youngsters as they're learning to embrace the idea that reading is valuable, important, and of high interest to them potentially is like this concept of like, well, how much time is left on the timer? You told me 10 minutes, how much time? And we spend most of the time evaluating the timer. Um, but rather kids embraced and valued that time highly. And I think that speaks to the culture Eric has helped to begin to develop here collaboratively with the staff, right? So there is this, this culture that reading is important. Reading is fun. Reading is engaging. Um, and I think that's really firmly rooted in the idea that students are identifying high interest texts. I don't, you know, Eric even mentioned, um, robust classroom libraries. Um, and I think our teachers really participate in enhancing those and, and encouraging students to identify something. So it starts there. Which is huge. I'm teaching at the college level right now as well. And I'm teaching college students who freely admit to not having read a book since about fifth or sixth grade. And these are, you know, successful students and they have not read. So when I'm in a high school like this, and I'll tell you my litmus test is when I can talk to students and say, hey, what are you reading? They all have an answer and they can tell me who their current favorite author is. 
and what they're going to read next. I mean, they are readers and it's unique. So then I'm going to ask you this question to put you on the spot because you're not expecting this based on the topic actually being conferring. <laughs> so they call this the old bait and switch. So if you had a learner of any age who just couldn't find a text, who couldn't find something that they could really dig deep into or that they were really um, in love with, what are some pointers or what are some strategies? Because even so as an educator and as a parent, I find myself in this position regularly, whether I'm talking to the kids or teachers or parents and just like, well, my kid can't find something they can dive deep into. Mm -hmm. What are the things that really help narrow that search from any old text that I can't fall in love with to something that really helps me fall in love with reading? Well, and we could pull almost any English teacher here at Roxbury because that's the heavy lifting they've done because most teenagers are not really good at it. They go pick the shortest book or the book with the coolest cover or the book that, you know, their friend read, but they don't really. And even I, as a, I don't brag about much, but I'm a good reader. And I often will have to go through several books before I find the book that just feels like I can keep going and going. And so some of the work I know teachers have been doing here is getting students to recommend books to one another. So if a kid comes in and they say, oh, you know, Mr. Schmidt, I stayed up till 2 a.m. I couldn't put this book down. Great. Can you talk to the class about that? Can you, you know, sort of sell that book in a little 30 second commercial? So they are doing the work of recommending books to one another, which is super powerful. They're taking students to the media center and you have a fabulous librarian who knows she has her finger on the pulse and she's recommending books that she knows are going to be appealing. Um, also doing interest surveys. You know, what are you interested in? Because if I ask them what books they like, a lot of them will say none. But if I say, well, what are you into? What do you do in your free time? Is it video games? Is it skateboarding? What is it? Well, guess what? There are books about that. So helping them identify even through the TV shows they watch or the movies they like, what books might be connected to it, getting them talking to each other about books, teachers modeling their own reading lives, and using the phenomenal resources out there, which are librarians, websites, so many great websites out there um, that they can tap into and find book recommendations. So one of the things I'm just going to emphasize there, and I know, Eric, it's been important for you too, as you have really built book love as part of the um, an intangible element of the culture of literacy here at the high school and even down into the middle school, is something you just said there, Barrett, is teachers modeling good reading practice and teachers modeling the expectation of reading for themselves Right, we're sitting outside your office, Eric, and on your office door, yeah. Mr. Schmidt is currently reading. There is a whiteboard sign there that demonstrates that your your email signature has that. Many of the teachers have those things as well, um, and yeah. so I guess one of the things that I'll take personally is that piece of modeling. Right, like it's easy for me, even as a parent, to say, "Teacher wants you to read tonight. You got to read for twenty minutes." And what better way to really emphasize that than for me to pick up a book and read as well. So that's really a great pointer for parents. Like, And that reading can take all different shapes, right? Uh, maybe it's a book we read together as a family. Maybe we read aloud. There's not enough value on reading aloud and listening. Audiobooks when yep. you're driving places. So I think that's a really great takeaway. Again, we're not even at the topic of today's conversation, which <laughs> is really conferring and feedback. But you know, I think it's important to really hammer that home, which is mm -hmm. modeling. Take that 15 or 20 minutes to really model that expectation alongside your child. Pull, pull up on the couch with a book um, and something of high interest. Maybe it's just a magazine. Maybe it's Popular Mechanics. That's okay because yeah. reading is reading. 
Um, and if it's high interest, you're going to keep reading and then you're going to fall in love with something, which is really the direction you want to go. I, and by the way, I want to build on that just as a tip to caregivers that, you know, you said a magazine. We could be reading on our phone, but kids can't tell it's a book because they can't see. They just see we're on our phone. So the act of even getting a hard copy of a book um, and even, you know, buying books. I'm a huge fan of libraries. I take my own kids to the library. But it says something when you say, no, I, I value this and I'm going to invest in a book. Go to the bookstore with them. Let them buy a book that they can revisit and hold on to. Absolutely. And I just got to, like, you know, speak to the English department here. They champion reading. They yes. model this. Uh, we have a practice called Book Talks where they have a moment to talk about something that they're currently reading or something that they highly recommend. Um, we have, you know, different months with focuses where we celebrate different authors. Um, so there's a lot of modeling that goes on here. And I even think, too, as, you know, just being a parent of two young children, all the, the work we do at home to also try to model and have them see, you know, reading in practice. And I think about that trip to the library too. When my daughter went and got her library card for the first time, it was like she got her driver's license. Uh, <laughs> she was so excited, you know, to have that moment of like opened to this world of freedom and opportunity um, that she had access to. So to see reading, uh, to see the people in, in your life read, uh, that, that's huge in creating that culture. Okay. So now that we've you, you kind of built that culture, let's get to kind of our topic today, which is conferring. Yeah. Um, how do we talk about that? How do we dissect that? How do we um, really ensure as educators that we're making sense of what we're reading? And then Barrett, you even mentioned the importance of feedback and you, 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 you know, included in there some data, which I think is important. So anyone who's interested, you know, John Hattie has collected a ton of research over the years and has many, I guess, disciples of education, you know, who follow his work as well. And, you know, you bring up the point that feedback has the, the potential to support one and a half to two years of additional growth beyond the typical learning trajectory. That's how powerful high-quality feedback can be. You describe what high-quality feedback looks like with some specific characteristics, and there's a ton of research out there. It's timely, meaning right now, um, in that moment. It's specific and future-oriented, right? Those are some of the highest um, ca characteristics of high, uh, pardon me, some of the most powerful characteristics of high quality feedback. Um, goal oriented, you also talk about the student buying into that goal, like set that goal together, where are we going? And that really helps support the idea that learning is a process, not something that is finite, right? Too frequently in life, we take these tests uh, in school, it's this moment in time, it's over, you got this grade, move on. Except that doesn't mirror the world we live in, right? If you think about any any high impact moment like that, your driver's license, we were talking about driving, things mm -hmm. like that, right? If you're not successful at the first take mm -hmm. on that thing, guess what? You try it again. You yeah. you take feedback, yeah. you practice, you demonstrate improvement, and guess what? You still get a passing score, right? Um, SATs, the same thing. So um, any high stakes moment beyond typical schooling trajectory, you get these moments to gather feedback work towards improvement, demonstrate mastery, and then that becomes the, the the piece. You also mentioned good job. So I do want to talk about the potential detriment of low quality feedback, right? This right. um this, you know, um feedback that lacks substance actually can be detrimental, right? Cause as how it connects to student self image and their impression of who they are. So sorry, I've done a lot of talking. I want to pass the ball back to you about the feedback and the environment in which right. it gets provided. Well, and I should mention, I love this quote from Carl Anderson, who's a literacy guru and has helped so many students and teachers. And he says, conferring or feedback, you know, it's not the icing on the cake. 
it is the cake. It really is what makes a difference. And I know it's true in my own teaching practice. I had a coach in my classroom for years who absolutely turned me into, you know, moved me out of sort of mediocre teaching to stronger teaching. And one day I was going to teach the lesson. She was going to observe and she was going to give me feedback. So that's how I grew as a teacher. But we knew there was going to be a fire drill partway through the period. So we were going to miss like 15 minutes. And so my coach said, all right, you know, what are you going to do? We're going to have to go outside, line them up. We'll come back in. You're going to lose some time. So where are you going to start when we come back in? And I said, well, I'll start with my lesson, of course, because I worked hard on it and I want to show off to you. And she goes, oh, no, you're going to skip your lesson. It doesn't matter that much. You want to go right to the feedback. And she was the one who really helped me shift my thinking about the power of feedback in the classroom and that it wasn't this thing, this extra to get to if you have time. It was the fundamental part of the practice. It's what helps students feel seen. It's what helps you differentiate pretty painlessly too, um, and give every student what they need. And also when you look at the research around how grades, grades have almost no impact on achievement. I mean, we have to have them, that's part of our social system, but, um, but conferring and feedback, tremendous impact. So, so how do you make it high impact? I mean, even the, the good job is not the worst thing in the world. I mean, it's probably not detrimental. We've been talking about even the power of just one-on-one um, conversations with students can be really powerful just to listen to them and say, what are you working on? It's not a therapy session. You're not asking them about their lives, but you're asking them, what are you trying to do as a reader or as a writer? And what's one way I can help you with that? And that value of that one-on-one is huge. You know, I think about what I used to spend on piano lessons for my daughter. I used to spend $40 on a half-hour piano lesson. And I think if you do private lessons on anything, it's usually about that. It's at least a dollar a minute. And the reason I think there's such a high price tag on that is because that learner is getting totally personalized feedback on what they're doing. So in that lesson, she would play a little bit, and then the teacher would give her a little bit of feedback. And then she'd play, and she'd give feedback. And then she would go home and practice. And that's what we're trying to recreate a glimmer of that in classrooms, is I'm going to listen to you and what you're doing. I'm going to give you a little feedback, and I'll circle back in a couple weeks. And it is amazing to see what happens in those one-on-one conversations. Just this morning, we were in a classroom, and a student basically said, yeah, I'm finding it really hard to slow down my reading. You know, all this exciting stuff is happening and you're telling me how to really think about character and develop theories, but I just want to get through the plot. And we said, oh, we can help you with that. Here are some ways to slow down your reading at high tension moments and really do some heavy lifting and analysis. And until she said that, I don't know if we would have known that's what she needed help with. So it was a great conference. That's awesome. And I want to speak to this point of kind of debunking the myth that this is more of like an elementary practice, uh, because that sometimes comes up that this is, you know, not really meant for a secondary world. Uh, I remember from my own time in the classroom when I was meeting with students individually and we would set goals and then strategies to go about achieving those goals. The students would often be uh, in amazement that I'm taking the time to help them grow and be better. It was almost as if I don't have to pay for private tutoring. I get it Right. right here in the classroom. Uh, So that was kind of the revelation that I had had as a teacher in the classroom, that this really isn't an elementary model. It is just an opportunity to help a student get to the next step to be a better reader or writer. And what I think is really great, and in a future episode, we'll get this together, is we have this same structure of training. um, And I'm going to ask you to describe, Barrett, 
um, kind of that lab site model kind of format of training, which we use there too. And I, I'm looking forward to the idea of having a, a larger conversation about what we're doing at the elementary level, how it connects with the skills and practices up through the secondary level. Because if student, if if conferring and conferencing and setting feedback and being a part of that conversation loop um, with students is something they learn early, it's something they embrace and expect as a part of our instructional program. It just becomes something that is typical yeah. um, as they get older, right? And as opposed to something that's out of the norm. And then, in fact, what we find is we as the adults are the ones that need to shift away from our our way of thinking, which is more closely aligned with the way we were taught, which may have been the best practice or the most appropriate. We've just, as as with anything, you continue to learn and you continue to improve based on feedback, right? And so education has done that. Education has evolved and improved in that time. Um, and so one of the things that I think is really important as we talk about feedback and you talk about some of those characteristics and, and you're right, saying good job to someone which is affirming isn't necessarily detrimental. The piece that can become detrimental is kind of like you're so smart, right? Mm-hmm. Things that are very, uh, yes. you know, overly complimentary, which feel really good to say. He's a natural. Have, <laughs> have yes. absolutely no substance. And in some ways, not only in the present moment, diminish the effort. But in the future, they really do because when a stu- if a student is constantly told, you're so smart, you're so smart, you're so smart, you're such a good reader, um, without that context, when they inevitably struggle, and let's accept this, everyone's going to struggle. Everyone's going to have difficulty. At some point, they have this adverse reaction to now the challenge of their self-image, of who they are, because they're like, well, no, no, I've always been such a good reader. I don't know how to handle this moment where I'm not a good reader right now. Um, and so you kind of talk about that. And I think it's important to note that feedback is a relationship. It, it while there is a power imbalance frequently teacher student administrator teacher parent kid right there is that imbalance of power um, feedback is a relationship um, and so there was a really great book I I read a long time ago um, called thanks for the feedback um, and so that book actually takes the opposite take on feedback right it kind of teaches you how to be the recipient mm. in a productive feedback loop as opposed to the giver right there's a lot of work on giving feedback what's giving feedback look like but how do you constructively receive feedback without getting defensive, without um, you know, um, feeling like you need to substantiate the decisions that were made and the actions that were taken, and really genuinely listen and consider? You may have a difference of opinion. It's okay. Um, but how do you, that then leads to a really great conversation? And so you, you, you talk about that relationship, and I really think that's, that's paramount in establishing that culture. All right, so... Um, you know, you talk about the other thing I think is important is you, you mentioned students are seen, right? When we, when we participate in a really productive conversation on feedback, we validate the other person's effort. So let's talk about that and what you've seen. Um, I guess I could have prepared that sentence a little bit better, (laughs) Uh, but tell us about that. I think that part, especially as I love that you're mentioning, this isn't just an elementary practice. And it's one of my favorite things to see shift in a high school, because as students get older and they're in their teen years, they tend to have very little one on one time with adults who they're not related to. Um, There's there's very little of that. And so when they have a teacher sit down and say, what are you working on? And they get used to also talking in that one-on-one conversation, even that, the value of them just being able to reflect on what they're trying to do and talk about it and have an adult listen to them, as you said, not in a hierarchical way, but in a supportive way, is is a game changer. And it really is great to see in these classrooms. And they're doing it here. Uh, and Eric, you know, I think that's a credit to you and, and the teachers because um, 
while we can create a structure to provide the potential for people to feel supported, actually going and doing it is a whole different thing. And I think that, you know, you and the teachers deserve a lot of credit for your collaborative efforts together to not only embrace the ideas and welcome Barrett into the classrooms and into the department and our school, but having that organic style of work together, right? Professional learning where there's a, a trainer or someone talking to teachers is one thing, but inviting um, Barrett, who is a, you know, a consultant that we partner with into our classrooms, demonstrating the vulnerability to receive, to model that feedback loop, right? Like the teachers are receiving feedback in the moment with kids there, right? That's really vulnerable and complicated. And I commend Eric and the teachers for, for embracing that idea. Um, and so tell us some of the steps that you've taken, right? If I'm maybe an administrator or teacher in another district, like what steps have you guys taken to make that feel safe? Because I think that's important as we, as teachers are constantly under the, you know, under scrutiny and being hyper evaluated these days, which, you know, listen, any profession, you, there's accountability, but that, that idea of hyper sensitivity to the evaluative process, I think is a reality that we need to acknowledge from a teaching standpoint. It's far more complex than it was when I was a teacher, you know, only 15, 20 years ago. So talk about how you've worked to build that culture in partnership with Barrett, because it's where you guys are making huge strides. Um, yeah, I mean, thanks. That's, that's a big credit to our teachers in the department as well as Barrett and her assistants. Um, for us, I think, like you said, it, it really can't be evaluative in any way. There has to be kind of that freedom to fail, freedom to try. Uh, and when you see someone make that effort to celebrate that, um, that's, that's huge. Um, to the same degree, a lot of this is also teacher-inspired and teacher-motivated. Uh, a lot of what we're doing today, the work we've been doing recently, has been from feedback I'd received directly from teachers. Um, and we try to make kind of just like giving them feedback as we would give our students feedback. What is, what is actually consumable? What can we wrap our heads around in this moment? And what is the next step that we could take to, you know, try something new to get better? Eric, you've also been really thoughtful too about thinking about this along a progression. So if our, if our dreamland is this culture of just thriving readers who are doing all this critical analysis and they're reading in class and out of class, that's our dreamland. And you're getting there, but you've been really thoughtful about starting with just that 10 minutes of book club reading a day and then just making sure they have rich classroom libraries and access to books. And then we just thought about teachers modeling themselves as readers. So it's been a really thoughtful, I thought, just looking for small shifts. It wasn't trying to flip everything on its head all at once. It was a series of small shifts. And like I say, now I go into classrooms and everyone has a book and everyone's reading. But it's been a, um, it's been a series of small shifts that you've been careful at not overwhelming anyone with. That's, and I think that's just feedback too, right? You know, if you're, mm -hmm. you're giving someone too much feedback, what's the one thing I need to really focus on or work toward? Uh, but instead, small shifts and small changes is really all anyone could take um, moving forward. Well, and I think one of the things is I'm even hearing you guys talk about the emergence of book love as something that's really become an integrated part of the culture is it also, I feel like, gives the teachers and the students this moment of calm to settle into a routine. Um, routines do matter. Routines are important to people. Um, and it's a safe place to prepare for the learning that's about to come. Yes. Um, it's kind of like um, warms up the warms up the engine, so to speak, as temperatures are dropping here. Um, and it's also know. meditative almost, right? Yeah. They get a moment of quiet in a very hectic, chaotic day. And, and I think one of the one of the struggles, not only kicking that idea off, goodness, seven years ago, 
um, but probably is a current reality everywhere, is, well, I don't have enough time. Uh, and that is the truth in education. There is not enough time that is a resource we cannot replicate. But I guess one of the places Eric and I landed on when he proposed this idea uh, and we said, yeah, we're all in for this for this structure is one, is it important? Does it align to what we hope to for learners to achieve? And of course, there was a resounding yes there. But more importantly, if students can take that moment to center themselves, prepare for the class they're about to participate in, let's just make up numbers because statistics are fun and sometimes easy to make up, right? So if a, without that moment, if a student is spending 100% of the class period operating at 80% efficiency, right, you're going to get some things done, most of the things that you anticipate achieving. But when you take a little bit off the top, let's say we're now getting 90% of our time, but students are operating at 95% efficiency, we're getting much more accomplished. So we get lost in this idea of if we give up minutes, we're losing time. But if we're not, op if our students aren't ready to learn and they're not operating at the highest level of efficiency, we're actually going to get less done than if we give up a few moments to, to get that together. And so I do think that is important to acknowledge as a part of this effort, not to mention it allows those moments of dialogue, the feedback moments, to be a little bit more impactful because we're better prepared to listen and participate in the reception of that information. Oh, it's like you just primed the pump. The classroom we were just in, the students started off with this in-depth reading, and then they moved right into this beautiful character analysis. But you're right. It first primed the pump. It got them thinking about it, engaged, and then they were ready to go off and do some really high-level work. All right. So let's let's kind of end here. I have a couple other things I want to say as this work is connected, but let's give some tips, right? So you got maybe three different populations of people who have listened to this point in this episode, um, mm -hmm. teachers, educators, or parents. And so if they're thinking like, I would love to be able to, one of the two big things we've talked about, support my child, my children, my students with the idea that reading is really important, something that is attainable and something they can fall in love with. You have any tips there? Um, Barrett already gave us some before about how do we collect recommendations from the professionals and those around us, which is really great. But if there's something else, let's share that. The other piece that we talked about is how do we help build that culture where feedback is acceptable and valued, and then maybe even take the next step where it's sought, right? Get, the first step is accepting it as a part of the natural course of learning. But the, the next step of it is actively seeking it out, right? Hey, I'd love as teachers are kind of doing with you, like, hey, can you can you watch this thing and tell me what you think? And allowing yourself to be vulnerable and open to the idea that there's ways to improve. So do we have tips that we can share on either of those two topics? My first thought in just terms of like getting readers reading, um, you know, a trip to your local library is a great place to start. I mean, there's a wealth of knowledge and resources there. Um, and it's it's a fun trip too, right? Get outside of the house, get there on a rainy day. Uh, and then also just a resource that I found to be really effective is a book called How to Raise a Reader. Um, it's helpful because it is chaptered by levels of kind of aging um, and, and child development uh, with text recommendations specific to those different uh, age groups. All right. And I'm going to second what we were talking about earlier, which was just letting kids see you read. And so I think I know for me, I go right to my phone. And so putting the phone down and having that library book or a physical book and saying, let's all take a tech break and just pick up a book. Um, audiobooks also great though. So in terms of being open to feedback, I think what Eric said earlier, it's so important. People have to know it's not evaluative, that there's no gotcha. Um, if I open myself up to that, but I also think 
um, when we're doing this work in classrooms, we let students get ready for it. We sort of tell them, I'm going to come talk to you. Um, here's what I'm going to ask you so that they don't feel like a deer in the headlights or like they have to perform. Um, they're, they're ready for it. And they know if they aren't ready for it, I'll come back to you tomorrow. Um, so I think that part is really helpful. And then the last thing I would say about feedback is letting the recipient set the tone. And so whether it's a teacher or a student, I need to find out what it is you care about first before I jump in with my feedback. Because unless you're invested and it's something you truly want to improve on, it's wasted time and probably uh, could be a divisive form of communication. So first I have to ask you, what is it you want help with? And it's why this work has been so important here as Eric started with asking his teachers, what do you, what do you want to do as How a department? How can we make book love better? Yeah. And we started there and then we offered feedback and just a little bit at a time. I know I can only absorb probably one thing, <laughs> really, um, one thing at a time. So don't, don't overload people with too much feedback at once. All right, those are some great tips. I'm just going to uh, support um, what Eric said, too, with a great plug. If you're listening and you're from Roxbury, I mean, Roxbury Public Library is an amazing partner for us and our community. Um, the folks there um, with their leader, uh, Radwa, have really, Radwa Ali, who is the director of library services down there at the Roxbury Public Library, really do an amazing job of being a partner for our community. It's much, much, much more than a library, right? When I was a kid, you went to the library, you got a book, you went home. Uh, that the, the, Our public library offers so much more to our community than simply the opportunity to to grab a book, although certainly the, those opportunities are, are plentiful. Uh, the other thing I want to do is just really plug both of the texts that we've interacted with uh, for Barrett. So this is kind of a plug for Barrett, too. So what part of our introduction to her was on the first book Eric turned me on to, which is No More Fake Reading. Um, which even the title is catchy to me because I can openly admit I did plenty of that as a student. <laughs> um, and so that idea is really where we introduced this conversation together in this partnership. Um, but then earlier um, earlier this year, I guess you, is when this book came out, right? Your newest book, The Joyful Teacher. And while it covers lots of pieces that really could help support teachers with rekindling their love of their profession, um, particularly in a landscape where... Um, they've probably never been scrutinized to the degree they are now or under the under the pressures that currently exist in education. Um, you know, the book has a lot of really great ideas to enhance not only your own personal professional practice, but the classrooms and schools that you work in. And there are some chapters on the stuff we talked about today, right? Chapter six is about formative assessment and feedback. Chapter nine talks specifically about student talk and collaboration. While there's much, much more, we'll use that as a teaser for now. Um, you know, there's a really... A really uh, the breadth of information and supports that are provided there are really fantastic. And you've been an amazing Thanks. partner for us. So I can't, I cannot compliment, recommend, and thank you enough for everything you do to help our teachers and our school get better. Thank you. All right, so thanks for listening, and we'll continue this conversation because it certainly is a, an evolving process for us as well, although I think we're doing some some great things. I say we, but I can take no credit for it. It's really Eric, his teachers, and their partnership with Barrett. But we'll continue this conversation because we're going to connect K to 12 in the next conversation because it's happening in, in, that, in that space. So thanks for listening. Have a great day.